The reading for the sermon today comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Let's pray, shall we? Your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Merciful Heavenly Father, may we not walk in darkness, but have our paths illuminated by the light of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit. Let me say uh, welcome once again, especially to those who are with us for the first time or who wouldn't normally be here. It's wonderful. I've had a chance to say hi to a couple of you, uh, but I I see a few other unfamiliar faces out there, and um, it's always a great joy for us to see. I'm only sorry that after worship today, we won't have much time to get to know you a little bit. We hope you'll come back, join us another time, so we can get to know you better. Many of our thoughts and prayers for the last week will have been occupied with the horrifying news of this shooting in Nashville, Tennessee, at a Christian school. And of course, uh, whenever we hear of any violence in any circumstances of this kind, it's just horrific to contemplate. But it's perhaps particularly painful in this instance because the perpetrator apparently was motivated by hatred of Christians specifically. She was a former student at the school. It's not clear that she had targeted specific individuals, but it seems pretty clear she targeted that institution. And so six believers in Christ are now dead and their families and friends grieving because of their Christian commitment. And the reason for calling this to mind is not to engage in all the usual social and political back and forth that generally accompanies incidents of this sort, but because it helps us to adopt the appropriate emotional posture for approaching the Word of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And also, I think and hope that 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 may in turn shed some light on and those events of last Monday and perhaps help us to see them in an appropriate biblical context. The emotions we feel, in other words, all the things you're feeling now and perhaps felt on and off during the week of horror and grief and outrage and anger and a desire for justice are entirely right emotions in those circumstances 
and the emotions that if we knew the situation better, we would be feeling as we read the passage of Scripture which I just read to you. Especially look at verse, well, we didn't read this, but from last week, the end of verse 4, the Apostle speaks of all yours, your steadfastness, pardon me, and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are suffering. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are also suffering. And I'm afraid that we are probably so accustomed to hearing of the suffering of the early church that we, we rarely pause to contemplate what it was like. It was horrifying. And it went on for decades, even hundreds of years. If you recall the historical background to this letter, which we touched on just a few weeks ago, you remember there's two major sources. There's Acts chapter 16, and there's the first and second letter to the Thessalonians. Acts chapter 16 describes Paul's uh, second missionary journey, so-called, when he arrived at Thessalonica for the first time. He's, uh, he and his companions are attacked by a mob. They are falsely accused of treason, and in a bitter irony, they are then accused by their accusers of causing all the riots that the accusers stirred up with the mob that they gathered. The civil authorities completely failed in their duty to protect the innocent, in contrast with the situation in Nashville, where it looks like the police response was pretty swift. And instead, they required the Thessalonian Christians, newly converted believers in Christ, to pay money to the civil authorities as a kind of bond or guarantee that Paul and his companions would leave, which they promptly did in fear for their lives, only to be followed by their Jewish persecutors into the next city, Berea, where they stirred up the same hostility again. And as you read First and Second Thessalonians, you get a similar story to there in the book of Acts. Right at the beginning of the first letter, Paul says in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You're becoming like Jesus. Why? Because you received the word in much affliction. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6. And then in Second uh, Thessalonians, we've read verse 4 already. The persecution is still ongoing. And indeed, their faithfulness is manifested by their clinging to Christ in those horrific circumstances. One scholar, I was reading an article by Nicholas Taylor, a New Testament scholar, he summarizes the historical situation like this. Official action against the church, concerted persecution of the community as a whole, strained family relations and other consequences in an urban economy in which paganism impinged on every social and economic activity. In other words, not just in Thessalonica, but actually across much of the ancient world, for the first two and a half centuries of the Christian church, you get fired from your job because you wouldn't pray the pagan prayers. And who wants one of those Christians around? Might arouse the wrath of one of our little tin pot household gods. You'd be shunned by your family, leaving many homeless or destitute. You'd suffer unprovoked attacks and violence from people in the community you'd never even met. And the civil authorities would either not do anything or they'd even join in. And that continued on and off until sometime in the early part of the 3rd century, sorry, 4th century AD. So how do you respond to that? I mean, we, <laughs> we had a kind of test case. How, how do you respond to a situation like that in Nashville or to hearing what it was like for so many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of our forefathers in the faith for, for generations Sometimes adversity strengthens us, doesn't it? But I wonder, does it always do that? I mean, some, might it cause your faith to wobble? 
ever so slightly, might you be tempted to wonder where the Lord is and what the Lord is doing in these circumstances. And it's interesting, when you, when you look at the Thessalonian correspondence, these two letters, you get a clue about what Paul is concerned about for his young Christian friends. These guys have been Christians for perhaps a few months. And you notice it, actually. If you, you might even have spotted it last week if you're paying really close attention. I didn't draw attention to it, but at the beginning of both letters, you know, they're written like a few weeks or a couple of months apart. Beginning of the first letter, Paul reports what he's been praying for, for them, and what he's been thanking God for. And he says, we're remembering before God, our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, steadfastness of hope. That's what he's thanking God for, because that's what he's heard about them. Now, by the time the second letter comes round, and he's had another back and forth with whoever took the letter to them, probably Timothy. Timothy's come back and brought another report. And now Paul's prayer of thanks is different at the start of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you realize what he's concerned about. Look with me. Verse 3, we we looked at this last week. Your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for each other is increasing. And where are we looking now for the steadfastness of hope? So look at verse 4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are suffering. Can you see what's happened? It's an astonishingly powerful piece of writing because the hope has disappeared from the text of the letter. Driven out by persecutions and afflictions. You can see what Paul's concerned about, can't you? He's worried that these Christians may be losing hope. Otherwise, he'd thank God for it, and he doesn't. Instead, it's steadfastness in affliction, steadfastness in persecution, which is good, but without hope. What would it be to endure without hope? And the message I want to lay on your hearts today is very simple. Don't lose hope. I want to show you how Paul the Apostle reinstates future hope in the hearts of his Thessalonian friends. And I want to encourage hope in your hearts in the face of all the, well, for us, mostly lightened momentary afflictions. But who knows what the future may hold and what the present holds for some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in this country and elsewhere. And there are two interwoven themes I want to explore. And and they're really quite simple in a sense, but they take us deeply into the, the logic of this letter and I hope and pray that they will rekindle hope in the hearts of any who've lost it. The first is, the Lord promises relief to his faithful, suffering people. Look with me again at this uh, opening paragraph, verse 5. He's reflecting on the persecutions and the afflictions, all the different things that these Christians fear every day. And he says, look, verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, come to that in a few minutes, and verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted. The Lord will grant relief. It's very simple. This won't go on forever. The Lord sees, the Lord knows, the Lord will act, and there is a day coming when your afflictions will be over. 
Don't lose hope. Whatever it is, whatever it is that might afflict a believer in Christ, that might ever cause them anguish, sadness, pain, grief, every single thing, the Lord will grant relief. He promises to do so. Here, for people in far more painful circumstances than we are. This helps us, to a certain extent, to understand uh, what is often seen as a paradox, uh, because actually this is a passage about the judgment of God coming on the, the persecutors of the church. And sometimes people struggle to, to see, well, how does the judgment of God, which sounds like bad news, fit with the good news of the gospel? And that question is framed in lots of different ways. And Well, at one level, the answer is very simple for those who are being afflicted, right? The judgment of God on those who are persecuting you would be the same thing as deliverance from your afflictions. And in general terms, the day on which God will alleviate all this sadness and grief and mourning and pain is the day of the final judgment. So both in the long distant future, final day, and also during history from time to time, God acts in judgment so as to liberate those who are oppressed. And so we pray for God's judgment. That's why we've got imprecatory psalms, psalms of cursing, to show us how to pray for those who are persecuted. For, the, for their faith in Christ. And the Lord promises to do that. Now, verse 5 is a bit of a tangle, really. Um, the, there's a bunch of grammatical ups and downs in the Greek text, and I thought about dragging you through all that, but we'd be here till sometime mid-afternoon. And I, I just want to summarize it, because the, the, the way it's translated in a number of different Bibles, it varies slightly, and I want to give you a sense of the, the logic of the text. Uh, first, very briefly, verse 5 this is evidence. Well, the evidence is their faithfulness in persecutions. That's what the evidence of the righteous judgment of God is. Second, again in verse 5, the little phrase, that you may, indicates not God's purpose, like what God is trying to accomplish, but rather the result or the outcome of, of their sufferings. And then finally, again in verse 5, it does say that word worthy, doesn't it? Um, uh, you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. And that causes heartburn occasionally because we think, oh, that indicates something about our merit. We're worthy of salvation. It's nothing of the kind. It, it means something more like it's fitting. It's, it's related to the word in chapter 1, verse 3, as is right. It's appropriate. So you bundle all that stuff together. And here's, here's the logic of the encouragement that Paul gives his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. God is in the process of putting the world right. He's doing it even now, and he'll bring it to completion in the future. At the present time, God is actually putting the world right, acting in judgment, bringing justice through the righteous suffering of his people, like Jesus. Parenthetically, obviously like Jesus. What's the one act in human history through which God put most injustice to rights? It was the most unjust action has ever been undertaken. The, the unjust suffering of the Son of God, the unrighteous actions of those who crucified him, were at one and the same time the greatest and strongest and most enduring manifestation of divine justice. God is putting the world right even as his people suffer unjustly. And the paradox of the gospel, isn't it glorious and painful? Now why would you do it this way? I have no idea. <laughs> 
But that's how the Lord does it. God bringing justice through human injustice. And so you Thessalonian Christians, this is quite a long paraphrase of verse 5, I realise that, but um, you're getting the message. So you Thessalonian Christians belong in the kingdom of God because you just fit with the king. You're doing the same thing as the king did. So of course you belong in the kingdom. Now I don't know whether that would completely alleviate all of the um, pain and anguish and grief of losing relatives in first century Thessalonica or in 21st century Nashville. It certainly doesn't address the question which we're going to come to in a few minutes time of like when does this take place when is that day and we'll come to that in a few minutes but doesn't it reframe things slightly if you could say to a christian who was suffering look i know and i and i don't know i i I know that you're suffering such unbearable heartbreak and i cannot know your pain and I, I know how unjust it is, but I cannot tell you that I know how unjust it feels. But what I can tell you is this, like, you are copying Jesus. We've, we've got a God who became flesh so that he'd know what it feels like to feel like you feel. So this is the way that God is putting the world right. God does it through Christians suffering unjustly. And it's really intriguing when you look back in verse 4, Paul seems deliberately trying to cast the net wide. All your persecutions and in the afflictions, there are two articles there in Greek, it's literally all the persecutions of you and in all the afflictions and the two articles seem designed to say well there's persecutions on the one hand and we're all kind of happy well not happy but we we understand how persecution for the sake of Christ fulfills God's purposes but every other aspect of affliction as well in some sense what we're doing is we're and I say we I mean yes and some here have suffered terribly as Christians but even if it wasn't inflicted by unbelievers because you're a Christian, it was affliction in a fallen world. It's just the pain of being here. And that's what Jesus experienced. The whole of his life, in a sense, was suffering. And the climax of it was his suffering on the cross. I was reading the Standing in the Gap prayer letter, and um, you, many of you would have got this email to you. Uh, if you haven't got, got it, then you can pick it up from the back of the church. It goes through... Uh, situations in the persecuted church worldwide where believers in Christ are suffering for their faith and many find it helpful in like their daily prayers it's like one prayer a day Pastor Shaw emailed it out and I think Mrs. Loki emailed it out as well and it tells on I think it's the 12th of April maybe the 13th of April I was looking ahead Miriam from Burkina Faso who was kidnapped uh, forced into a marriage and suffered three years of appalling abuse before she finally escaped and was reunited with her family. What would you say to her? I have no idea. I can tell you what she said. God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, and he is going to take care of everything. God kept me in life, saved me, and brought me back to my family. In the same way, my future is in his hands. Yeah, so 
when we meet her, we won't be giving her lessons on the theology of Second Thessalonians, will we? She, she'll be giving them to us because she's living them out. And one day in the future, it will all be complete, verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. There, will, there is coming a day when every tear will be dried among the people of God. And all of the pain somehow will be, I don't, if you say taken away, it sounds like you're trivialing, trivializing it, doesn't it? But there's coming a day with no more mourning or crying or tears or pain when the living God is unveiled from heaven in the person of Christ to judge the living and the dead. Because our Future hope is the judgment of God. So that's the first theme. Now the second, of course, is the flip side of that promise. It's the warning that God promises and warns of judgment against the violent and ungodly persecutors of the church and of his people everywhere and of these Christians in Thessalonica particularly. I'd like to invite you to look with me at verse 6. I've, I've mentioned it. It's very helpful if it's helpful to me if you have a Bible, and many of you do. I encourage you to bring a Bible to church because days like this, boy, it's useful. Verse 6. Paul continues, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. We looked at that already. As well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Oh, thanks Paul, that's enough. No, it's not enough. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. The ESV footnote is right here, not the ESV text. I'll come to that in a few minutes. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The Lord here warns, as he warns elsewhere, but here in more vivid and dramatic colours of a coming future day of vengeance. Verse 8. Punishment, verse 9, for all those who oppress the people of God. Now this is not some arbitrary, malevolent, sadistic infliction of pain on people who don't deserve it. God does not enjoy inflicting pain. Rather, he'd like the wicked to repent, 2 Peter 3 verse 9. He's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason why the, sec- the final coming of Jesus hasn't, hasn't happened yet is because Quite a lot of your relatives and friends and mine and a whole bunch of people we don't know haven't repented and God wants to give them time. He's patient, not wanting any to perish in the sense of his desire, not his decree. His decree is fixed, obviously, but the Lord expresses his desire that people should turn to him. But rather, Scripture expresses that those who persist in unrepentant rebellion against God will experience punishment, Vengeance, the righteous judgment of God, verse 6. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, 
This is what I have in mind, one of the things I have in mind. When I said a few minutes ago uh, that this may help us to understand the events that we've witnessed this last week and other events across the world by placing them in an appropriate biblical context. Because this is talking about how God works in history to judge wickedness. And so, does this help us to understand the world we live in? I want to suggest it does. The first thing it highlights is that the desire for justice and therefore the desire in the end for judgment, for punishment of wickedness, for vengeance even, those desires are not wrong. They are righteous desires. At least they they can be righteous desires when they're directed as God's righteous desires are, because God considers it just in these circumstances. Now, as I said, of course, it, it, it could be possible for us to desire the judgment of the wicked in a, in a way that the Lord doesn't. The Lord would rather they repented. And one of the tests would be to say, um, wouldn't we rather that those who hate the church repented of their sins and turned to Christ in, in faith, were united with Jesus, and so they were covered by his sacrifice at Calvary. Wouldn't we rather that? Now, that wouldn't necessarily remit civil penalties for those who'd committed crimes. But would we rather see a sinner in glory or in hell? That's actually a helpful test. Because guess what? There but for the grace of God go we. But subject to that test of the motives of our hearts, the desire for judgment is not wrong against those who are implacably opposed to the purposes of God. That's why, as I mentioned before, we've got the Psalms. We have the Psalms of Imprecation, which are God's instructions about how to pray for his vengeance against the wicked who won't repent. And it's a good thing that the Lord should act against unrepentant wickedness. Now, when does God do this? And I'm going to come to some more detailed questions about this in a second. There's two answers, really. Always at the final judgment. Yeah, always. Everything will be, so to speak, sorted out then. But there are times, and again, this is relevant to our present circumstance, where during history, in, in, the, in the age in which we're now living, God acts in history in judgment against wickedness and evil. And that's how I want to encourage you to view the response of the police officers in Nashville. We get so tangled up sometimes with some of the political and social debates that surround issues like this that we, we forget the theological point of what um, the living God is actually doing um, when he has civil authorities in place and it's working well, Romans 13 verse 4. The civil authorities, the magistrate and his agents, in this case um, armed police officers, are, quote, the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I want to suggest to you that that's how we should view the response of the police officers in Nashville. Wouldn't you pray for such a response in other cases where it's absent? We should. It would be better if it didn't happen in the first place. Like, obviously, it would be better if that young lady who'd been to that Christian school grew up a faithful Christian. But given that you got to this point, what we're seeing is God at work in history to bring about 
justice, partially. But this raises another question which is relevant to this text and some other texts. And I wanted to spend a, a few minutes here on this question. It, it won't just be an academic question, I hope. I think it will illuminate other texts and also help us to get a couple more details out of here. Especially in the New Testament, there are texts which speak of a future judgment, future from the point of view of the writers, and it's not always obvious what they're referring to. Are they referring to the final judgment, or are they referring to some future event, but in the near-term future, in history, so to speak, and particularly in the first century, the big event on the horizon is the one that Jesus unmistakably prophesied in Mark 13 and the parallel passages, which was God's judgment against the old covenant people of Israel for their rejection of him. That was a big deal, such a big deal that it was prophesied by Jesus himself. And that event took place in 70 AD, as you well know, um, and it was accompanied by the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and uh, the Roman armies swarming into the city and so on. Now, the question is, um, when you've got a, in the New Testament a warning of judgment passage, does it look forward to that event or does it look forward to the final judgment day? And there are some questions that need to be addressed here. And, and there's no simple test, okay? Sometimes people, they come to me and say, like, okay, how do you know which it is? Like, there's some... There's some simple test for preterism. Preterism is the doctrine that says the text has been fulfilled already in the past. There is no simple test. There is the long, hard work of looking at each text individually. Clue, if it speaks of the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, clearly that's still in our future, right? But there are some texts that don't, and, and this is one of them. And I want to walk you through this just to give you a sense of the kinds of questions you might ask, and it will actually take us deeper into what, frankly, are the horrors of the final judgment lest we should forget or take them lightly, lightly. So first, there are a couple of reasons why some people would say, well, this is a 70 AD thing. This is a destruction of the temple thing. The best argument probably in verse 6, it speaks of those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. And so some say, well, look, Paul's got his eyes fixed very sharply on this historical situation. So it suggests a very near-term fulfillment. And then the second argument, in verse 10, speaks of Jesus coming on that day. And that day, the same phrase is then used in chapter 2, verse 3, which does unmistakably refer to God's judgment against Old Covenant Israel. Come to that in a couple of weeks. But some have suggested, well, because it's the same phrase, that day, that day, it's like a kind of technical term, and so it's linking the two days. So those are the, the best arguments I can come up with that I've come across for thinking of this as a an AD 70 thing. Now, I don't think that's right. In this case, I think that's a mistake. And I want to show you why. Because there are many arguments here that highlight that really Paul can only have in view here the final judgment. And if we can see what he's saying, it will not only clarify our mind about this text, it might just leave us slightly stunned with what he's actually saying that judgment will involve. We'll come to that right at the conclusion. So first, this doesn't just focus on the Thessalonians, right? If you look in verse 7... To grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. So Paul is anticipating that whatever it is God is going to do, he's going to actually relieve him as well of his afflictions. And that can't be a reference to AD 70 and the judgment on Jerusalem, because then it wouldn't be historically true. Paul was dead before AD 70 came around. He died probably in about 66 or 67 AD, 
in Rome during the reign of Nero. We've got that from Eusebius. It's also obvious from 2 Timothy 4 because he's writing then, again, before um, the uh, destruction of the temple. And he said, I fought the fight, I finished the race. He thinks his life's about to come to an end. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness and so on. So that, you can't read verse 7 in that way because it's broader and includes Paul for whom AD 70 didn't impact him personally. And then verse 10 again, uh, that's the day when Jesus will come, come to be marveled at among all who have believed. You see, again, it's not just the Thessalonians thing. Paul isn't thinking of a, just a local thing. He's all who have believed. seems a more global and universal reference. It's the first reason. Second, historically, there are other reasons why this AD 70 reference just wouldn't make sense here. The first thing is, um, many in the Thessalonian church had died already before that day came around. We know that from accounts of the persecution of the early church. So again, it wouldn't make any sense for them to be relieved with the downfall of Jerusalem because they're not going to be on earth to experience that. And in any case, this is a more subtle point, the persecution in Thessalonica was not just Jewish persecution. Persecution from the the people of Israel, the synagogue authorities and so on. It was Gentile persecution. We know that from 1 Thessalonians 3. Speaks of them suffering the same things from your own countrymen as the Judean Christians did from the Jews. So suggesting your own countrymen are Gentiles, Greeks and Romans and so on. And they're the source of at least some of the persecution. Not all of it, because Acts 17 and so on. But Now, it's very hard to imagine the Gentile persecution stopping with the fall of Jerusalem. In fact, we know historically it didn't. It carried on. So again, that wouldn't make sense. Third reason, there's a tone to this which isn't there in chapter 2. Chapter 2, which is about the soon-to-happen-in-the-first-century events, seems to create the potential for alarm and uncertainty. And we'll see this in a couple of weeks when we look at it. But here, it's unmitigated relief. Whatever Paul is talking about in chapter 1, it's like, when this happens, it's going to be fine. There's no sense of anxiety or uncertainty about it. And so there are some reasons why it seems to me most obvious that the, the events that he's talking about here have to do with the final judgment and the last day, when Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. But there's one more set of reasons. And they're there in verse 9. And they're to do with the character of these events. Look what it says in verse 9. This is a description, I want to suggest, of the everlasting conscious punishment of the unrepentant who don't trust Christ, who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, Paul says. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, so lasting forever. And your Bibles might say something like, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You say something like that, you've got the ESV, I don't, some of the other translations say much the same thing. This reflects a common misconception about hell. It was actually made popular, I think, by C.S. Lewis in the 20th century, but by others. Um, and the idea is, well, hell is the place where God isn't. Have you heard that kind of idea? And so the, it has a kind of apologetic value because it seems easier to swallow, right? God gives to everybody what they've chosen. So if you've chosen, and that echoes Romans 1, doesn't it? He'll give to each according to, no, Romans 2. 
Well, Romans 2 and Romans 1, according to his works, and what, what they've chosen to be close to God, so you'll be close to God forever. If you've chosen to reject God forever, then you'll be reject, excluded from God's presence forever. Let me tell you, that is not the biblical doctrine of hell. And one of the places where people sometimes point to say it is, is here in verse 9, where they say, look, they'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That's not what it says. What it says is just from the presence of the Lord. It's just a single preposition. The ESV footnote actually has it pretty well. It, it's a paraphrase. Destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The thought, in other words, is this. Not that hell is a place of judgment where people are excluded from sight of God. But rather, hell is a place where people are confronted by the sight of God, but not as a gracious, loving Father, but as a, a burning fire. You should read, if you really want to have your Sunday afternoon unforgettable, go get hold of John Gerstner's book, Heaven and Hell in the Theology of Jonathan Edwards, and read the ch two chapters, if I recall. Read the chapter on hell. Uh, I can't remember the first sentence. Um, Hell is a physical and spiritual furnace of fire where the, the lost are tormented eternally in their souls and bodies in the, I forget, in the presence of the God who is that fire. Jonathan Edwards highlighted the, the fire imagery in the Bible. In the end, all comes back to one source. You cannot ever, ever escape the living God. And the final judgment that God will wreak upon unrepentant wickedness is to confront it as a blazing fire of judgment forever. That's what hell is. Now, sometimes people say preachers don't talk about this very much. Can you see why? I mean, at one level, I want to defend that because by God's grace, I mean, just think of that hymn we sang. Thou didst die that I might live. Blessed Lord, thou camest to save me. All that love of God could give, Jesus by his sorrows gave me. We, we rightly focus our thoughts on the glory of the hope that Christ won by going through hell, so to speak, for us. That's rightly where we focus our attention. But let us not forget the righteous judgment of God is coming one way or another on those who reject him and oppose his people. He's coming. He's not forgotten you. He's not forgotten them. And he never will. Let's pray together. Merciful God and Father, we are perhaps more grateful than ever before for the mercy which you've shown us in Christ, liberating us from the pains and pangs of death and hell. Watch over us, we pray. Keep us faithful in your service and stir us to 
cheerful and obedient faithfulness in any afflictions which you in your providence might might see fit to send us. Keep us faithful to you and steadfast like our brothers in Christ here in Thessalonica. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.